Hello and welcome to the second episode in our funds download series. I'm Phil Graham, global head of the investment funds team at Harneys and joined once again today by Matthew Tabor. Hi Matt. Hi Phil. You'll be very pleased from the uh, questionnaire that we sent out to, to all of our clients and contacts that the universal answer to should Matt stay in his loft was yes. Um, can, can you confirm that you've you followed that? I have followed that and uh, I'm spending even more time here now than ever as a result. <laughs> that is good to hear probably both for you and for your family. Um, fantastic. I, yeah, I think now, there's, now, there's, there's win-win, win-win there on that, on that front. <laughs> Fully, fully agree. Now, now, I'm pleased to say that we've actually managed to um, double the, the, the average IQ on this podcast today by uh, bringing in a couple of guests that we promised. First, we have uh, Mr. Phil Kite, the global head of uh, litigation at Harney's, a man with significant experience, probably, and Phil may argue, but, but more experience in this arena than almost any other offshore litigator there is. So it's a, it's a pleasure to have you, Phil, from, I believe, leafy London. Yeah, just outside London. Um, I'm here overlooking the road, which is normally quite busy. It's not busy. Uh, and it's just me and my dog. Good. We also have Nick Hoffman, the head of our Cayman litigation team, soon to be head um, and managing partner of our, of our Cayman office. And so as I'd like to describe you, Nick, sort of going forward, Matt's boss. Um, pleasure to have you. Uh, pleasure to have you on the podcast. Well, well, thank you, uh, Phil. Um, it's nice to be here. I'm in Cayman. And unlike Matt, I'm, I'm not in my attic. I, I can see natural light and there's plenty of it, I'm pleased to say. So that's keeping us going through this lockdown. Fantastic. Well, pleasure to have you both and, uh, and thank you for joining us. Matt, to sort of, to sort of come back to you and, and to continue from where we sort of left off on our, on our first podcast, we obviously got to March and talked about the sort of wobble that we saw in, in terms of the markets and, and the volatility that, that we saw. And, and it was interesting to sort of look at some of the responses to our, to our questionnaire and, and see that actually almost universally, managers did very little. That I would guess, given your sage knowledge and experience, you may have actually seen that coming, but... I'd be interested to sort of know what conversations you did have during March and sort of uh, a, a bit of experience about what you expected and what you didn't expect and uh, maybe had the volatility lasted a little bit longer where you may have seen people going towards. Yeah, I mean, I think if you're looking at uh, what, what managers did and didn't do, some of them might say they did quite a lot, but they certainly didn't involve us. And that has continued to be the case. We still have seen and spoken to managers of funds that I think would arguably be described as smaller or ones that may not have reached critical mass in time before this happened. And so we are having discussions with managers of those funds to to close them. And that is, it's actually been quite calmly done. Lots of them are in situations where they've got good liquidity over the asset class. And because one or two of them have actually had prior experience since 2008 of closing down funds there's less fear around what that process looks like mm. so the reality is i think that those managers that are in that position at that end of the spectrum it's been done quite calmly and we are dealing with it we still haven't seen any big rush and i don't anticipate that to be the case for things like redemptions monthly nothing's happened so we've not had any clients get in touch with concerns about monthly redemptions and then we're coming up to the end of q2 now and if we look at the 15th 16th of may so you're, you're 15 days 
days out from your next redemption date and we still don't necessarily have anything and then for the end of q2 we've got 45 days and we would have expected by now if there was going to be a rush to have heard that now it was interesting to see on the the global figures that were published i think the ft ran an article saying that that about 33 billion disappeared from hedge funds in in the first quarter of uh, of 2020 um yeah. which was about sort of one percent of the of the market and um and the biggest sort of quarterly outflow since 2009 but but, but exactly as you say i mean it didn't look as if if that came in a, in a sort of a reaction to the shock or reaction to the to, to the volatility clearly there's a lot of other stuff going on in, in the sort of macro economy at the moment but it didn't lead to the kind of run on redemptions that we previously saw do you think that's because of the the sort of the investor base or do you think that's as you say because because managers are just more adept now or what, why do you think that is i think if i was going to guess i would say that it's more likely that you will see investors and allocators who have been around and went through the financial crisis who have that element of confidence as to how things may be dealt with and they can see and they've done due diligence on managers better over the course of the last 10 years. We occasionally do get a lot of managers who have set up an established post-financial crisis and they wouldn't have had the same experience. So that may be something to do with it. I think that you also, obviously, when it's a global event like this, there isn't necessarily some sort of flight away from an asset class which would give you something else in, in an easy sense. Obviously, we do see funds now that are setting up to take advantage of some of the government initiatives like the TALF initiative in the States. We've, we've got a few funds being set up for that. Um, and they're going after new allocations. And there's certainly some anecdotal evidence from fund managers and sponsors who are now adapting to a, a new way of trying to do capital raise, particularly in the private equity space. We've actually seen better success on, on their cap raises. So I feel like there's more serenity, I suppose, for want of a better word, amongst the, the allocator mm. and investor groups that, than you may have seen historically. Yeah, that makes sense. And, and you do wonder if sort of the lack of other available options is, is also part of it. But um... yes, the other funds are available probably doesn't apply in this scenario. <laughs> no, I agree completely. I mean, Phil to, Phil, to sort of bring you in, I mean, I can vividly remember sort of you and I back in 2008, sort of both trying to sort of scratch our head as things started to sort of play out towards the, the third and fourth quarters. And, and from both of our, our angles, trying to work out how we'd best deal with what was going on. But before we get to sort of the real horror stories, which is where you and Nick have sort of the real expertise. I mean, can you remember from those times sort of managers that you really felt were getting it right? And, and if so, you know, what were they doing that sort of impressed you from your side as to as to how they were best managing these scenarios? Yeah, I mean, we, we remember that we thought the whole financial system was collapsing and it was a scary time just just like now is a scary time there was a lot of litigation that happened in the in the next sort of four or five years in BVI and Cayman I was going through some of the cases and just trying to draw out a few lessons that you know, if the balloon does go up this time what people should remember and uh, I think the first thing is that the parties that did well in the subsequent litigation at trials tended to be ones that had their documentation right so you know they, they had proper minutes and documents backing up those minutes saying look we're looking at option A, B or C and option A may be do nothing but it was properly backed up with you know, some sort of data. And uh, when you know, directors, investment managers, trustees had to give evidence at trial, 
they had a proper document to show the court and said, look, this is why I made this decision at that point in time. And they tend to do very well. The ones that turned up without that documentation still had to, you know, make a go of it. And they came over pretty badly. So I think documentation was the first thing that really struck home to me as something that uh, people should look at. Uh, and the second thing is timeliness. The courts, uh, if they saw investment managers or directors or trustees do things in a timely manner and a sensible manner, then they would not so much let people off, but they would take a sympathetic view of that. And of course, if they saw parties that sat on their hands for a while, then they were very tough on them. So, so I think timeliness was the second lesson. And contractual provisions, I mean, this is obvious stuff, but the courts were very hard on people that didn't look at the contracts properly and good with people that did. So I think in terms of lessons to be learned, it's you know, read the contract, read the articles, do things in accordance with the contract, um, timely action, and I think most importantly, proper documentation. I mean, that, that's incredibly useful. I mean, Nick, sort of bring in your experience from your side as well. I mean, would you, would you largely sort of agree with all, all of Phil's points there? Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, from a litigation point of view, which of course, we all hope not to be involved with, it's absolutely essential that you can demonstrate to the court what you've done and, and why you've done it. It does go back to first principles. And um, when we were all talking about, you know, reminiscing the consequences and aftermath of, of market schisms such as 2008-9, you know, some basic things I think do demonstrate managers and, and directors part. The key really here is, I think, communication. That's communication between the board internally and also investor relations. And I think that can't really be emphasised enough because, Phil, when you talk about or, or allude to horror stories, very often they, they germinate in problems going wrong at the very beginning and boards not evidencing what they're doing, not discussing their options properly, not potentially taking legal advice early enough. And also that infects the way that they deal with their investors. And, and very often is a self-fulfilling prophecy. You have a situation that because funds aren't candid with their investors or candid to the extent that investors feel they should be, you precipitate litigation because it's the only way that investors feel they can get recompense. So I would say just adding to, to Phil's list of, I think, very helpful categories that communication both internally and externally are key. And that's, I think, a, an important lesson arising out of the financial crisis. Matt, sort of throwing it back to you slightly, because I think I think those are really, those really good points, but you, you will play devil's advocate and allow you to do so. You know, a manager may well, and you've heard this a million times in your career, jump in and say, look, I don't want to say anything to anyone here. I, I don't want to talk to my investors. I, I, I don't want to talk to you know, people internally. I believe in my strategy or, or frankly, I don't want to kick a sleeping bear. The last thing I want to do is communicate. And, and you know, what would you be your position when, when, when you've heard that from managers? How, how do you react to that? I definitely heard that more in 2008-9 than yeah. I do now because... Back then, nobody talked to anyone. 
to be brutally honest. Uh, I don't think we even talked to the litigation group at the firm I was at. We knew they were in the building somewhere and we had to dig them out from, from a cupboard um, during 2008-9 because I don't think they knew where we were either. And, and obviously all that's changed and, and, and you know, that's why we were able to have really good calls like this. So I think that the, the experience we have now probably sits into two different varieties. One is where there are independent governance professionals involved in the structure and ones where they aren't. And so where they are, and by that I really mean independent directors or professional directors sitting on the board of a corporate fund, that, that ability of a manager to kick things into the long grass is really not very, it's not something we see at all anymore. Mainly if you look at the, certainly if you look at the, the demographic of the professional directors that we, we have and we work with, almost all of them have been around long enough to have been through 2008-9. We do still see occasionally managers who, who don't have that type of governance structure and and occasionally have to get into these discussions with them. But to be honest with you, another reason why we don't see it is because they wouldn't be speaking to us if they didn't want to speak to their clients. It would be really quite rare for someone to have ended up on the phone with me who's then unwilling to engage if they think there's a problem. But I think that if you've got a manager who doesn't think there's an issue and who may be reluctant to speak to their investors, we wouldn't know about it necessarily until something's gone wrong. Can I just jump in there Phil because I think you know Matt really is honing in on on a key difference between if we want to put it ground zero 2008-9 and now independent directors have become a much more or professional directors have become so much more part of the landscape of the way in which corporate funds are governed um, that in fact a lot of these lessons are are at the forefront of their mind And, and even if they're not brought in at the very beginning they're they're now being brought in at a much earlier stage so that the communication that that Matt's talking about that I referred to earlier happens a lot earlier because these professional directors from their experience very often as liquidators i.e seeing how badly these things can go wrong are just astute to the fact that they need to get in front of a lot of these issues and I think that will hugely affect the the path of some of these funds if they do get into distress situations. I was just going to sort of bring back to, again, to our questionnaire. And we, we sort of asked the client base, you know, who were the first people that you got in contact with um, other than sort of, you know, people who sit next to you or remotely at the moment virtually sit next to you. And in the, the directors, the, the board were sort of top of that list, really. So it's really important they're bringing their, their level of experience. And, um, you know, Matt, I know you speak to a lot of different independent directors from from all around the world so it's a kind of interest on your your insight on how they've evolved as well yeah I, I think without exception frankly within that community that we come across um so that's either the professional community in cayman or, or elsewhere the the level of awareness of all sorts of different scenarios that have cropped up between 2008 and now amongst that group is, well, it's unrecognisable to what it was like back in 2008. And frankly, there's almost no point in doing a comparison. So the the advantage that a manager can gain in these scenarios from having that experience is actually potentially more valuable to them than it may be when things are running in ordinary course quite well, because you may find for a lot of, like I said, for a lot of managers, their experience potentially of, of really bad situations may well not be the same as someone who's seen and has got experience of dealing with all sorts of different funds. So that's like, 
you know, we have the experience, but they've also got someone on the board who's got the same experience. That's invaluable to them because they're able to provide them a level of practical advice and comfort that maybe we're not able to do, whereas we can provide something that's specific to documents and to outcomes. Okay, yeah. I agree. Go on, yeah. sorry, Phil. I was, just, I was just about to bring you in on, on your insights on this, really. No, I mean, you'd also hope that uh, lessons were learned with some of the documentation, which, which I think in the last financial crisis 100%. may have been tested for the first time on, on a sort of, because everybody was looking at their documents through the prism of, am I going to go to court? And uh, not drafted by Harneys, but some of the articles um, I saw were pretty ropey and lended themselves to litigation and, and, and maybe you know people learn from that and, and now the documentation uh, across the board is much better and much clearer and much easier for um, funds people to action upon. Yeah, I mean, speaking from as a fund, a fund formation lawyer, there was plenty of discussion in 2008 that the documents may have only been looked at for the first or second time. And we learned an awful lot from that period and also all the subsequent litigation, because when it comes to how you draft your documents to launch the fund, to do it properly, you have to have the best and the most up-to-date information about the latest case. And that was certainly, you know, there was a period in 2010-11 where there were a number of cases in both Cayman and the BVI that went through the through, through the first court up to a court of appeal and then to the Privy Council where depending on the day of the week we had to change our advice or give different interpretations as to what the documents needed to look like. Thankfully, most of those cornerstone cases have gone through to the highest court of appeal and we've got much more stability about what documents need to include. And you're absolutely right in that now when a manager asks us to dust off the articles or the offering document, we know with quite a degree of certainty that we can point to specifics and say that's fine because you've got this power or you've got this control. I think that's a that's a very nice segue into 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 the next podcast. I mean I think I think what would be useful if 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 Phil and Nick, you, you don't mind joining us again, would be to really get into some of the horror stories. Um, but sort of before we finally wrap up and, and leave for today, Phil, I was wondering if you had a manager who sort of sat there or, or indeed, a, I guess, a, a, an independent director that's on a board, they've seen the volatility in March, they, they've sort of, they've wobbled the, their way through that. But there's no doubt there's there's a heavy shadow over the global economy at the moment. Mm. If, if, if you were advising them on just things they should be doing right now, even if they're, you know, their, their numbers look good, even if... Um, everything is working at the moment the final bullet points you would give to those managers that maybe don't have the experience of 0809 would be what well i mean the what you see on the tv is um with the virus is test 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 and i think that's turned out to be probably right i would say documentation 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 because that is the thing that in two years time if you're in a witness box explaining what you did you really want to point to so that that's that's what i'd say beautifully wrapped into the uh, the uk government's uh, fantastic approach to this virus thank you for joining us today and uh, look forward to speaking on the next podcast thanks everyone